welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast about 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am risen. You are. I am returned. You have returned. (laughs) For a very special episode, because this week... We are wrapping up our read-along of The Blue Castle by Ellen Montgomery. And um, of course, as usual, we will have a special guest interview and we will be reading your listener comments. But first, Hannah, since you haven't been here to talk to us about your feelings about this book, and I'm sure you have feelings about this book because everyone has feelings about The Blue Castle. Um, tell us, what are your what are your general thoughts on this one? My general thoughts about the Blue Castle uh, are that I really enjoyed it. Mm. <laughs> Sounds good. I, I do have a lot of I do have a lot of feelings. I read it at a very strange time, which I will go into later because there's a lot to say about how that I think influenced my reading of the book. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I read the same book as everyone else. Sure. From the comments, um, I really enjoyed. Balancy. I really enjoyed like just the whole cast of characters. Um, I know that you were asking people what their favorite lines were. Yeah. And I feel bad because my, like that book has so much beautiful prose in it. I think sometimes maybe it was a bit floral for my liking. Mm-hmm. I always feel bad saying stuff like that. I don't know if I'm like a very romantic person, Mm -hmm. but I really liked the line, Valancy had long ago decided that she would rather offend God than Aunt Wellington because God might forgive her, but Aunt Wellington never would. (laughs) And I relate to that, but as Aunt Wellington. (laughs) There's so many like snarky lines in this book. There are. I just love the snark, just constant snarkiness. And yeah, so I really, I really enjoyed all of that. I really enjoyed Balancey's like inner, inner thoughts there, and outer thoughts. There is on. like a lot of snark. There's a lot of snark and there's like a lot of romantic prose and mm-hmm. there's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of light. Like it just, it's the scale goes back and forth on this one, I think a lot. I think it's a remarkable, I think it's a remarkable book. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of books out there that could Mm-mm. carry that those pros and names like Mr. Wilson, the Blue Castle and Barney Snape. <laughs> Barney Snape. Yeah. Or even the way like Barney Snape talks about the world around him. Mm-hmm. Like the way those two talk about the world and relate to the world is like very romantic. Yeah. Right? Everything is very romantic. And then she has this, yeah, this like hard line running through her. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, we're going to get into it. But first... I will do a quick recap of chapters 31 to 45. I've been doing these really short recaps. I don't think recaps. your recaps are that short, you Lauren. Don't, I heard you make that comment in the episode <laughs> of Eleanor, and I was like, okay, Lauren. They're, they're okay. shorter than yours on the page. Mm-hmm. On the mm-hmm. page. Okay. On the page. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> we'll see. This one might be a little bit longer, though. Um, so, okay, let's start with chapter 31. It's winter. Varney and Valency. I mean, what is their what's their couple name? Is it Varney? Barney. It's just Barney. <laughs> it's just and Barney. It's a dinosaur. Barney the dinosaur. <laughs> so Varney, they are like 
skating and snowshoeing and he buys her this beautiful pearl necklace and sometimes roaring able stops by and they play games and they just have like a great time in general they just seem like they're really having a a lovely winter really the opposite of my winter in lockdown to be honest (laughs) with you um there are a few causes for alarm however uh valency finds this newspaper clipping about a man who stole some money from a bank in montreal and she wonders hmm could barney have been involved in that in some capacity Barney also disappears for an evening when there's this terrible winter storm. So what's he up to? What's that guy doing? (laughs) Now, skipping ahead to spring, Barney busts the car back out, which is great. I was really happy to see that gray Slauson come back out. (laughs) And uh, those two start going back into town again. You know, they can she can see her family. Uh, just through the window, just peeking at them, just like, oh, yeah, they're still miserable. Hey. That's good. <laughs> don't get in. <laughs> don't. Yeah. Don't. We're not going We're shopping. not stopping. <laughs> we're just we're just looking. Um, Valency's family members also don't even recognize her by this point because she's just such a changed person. Mm-hmm. Valency also has a couple of realizations that spring. One is that seems like Barney has some feelings for her. And the other is that she hasn't had an episode for a couple of months. She's actually feeling really, really good. Um, And there's this one day she's out shopping with Barney and she gets her foot caught in a train track, which we will talk about this later because this is an interesting (laughs) scene. And um, Barney happens to rescue her before she is hit by that train in this very dramatic moment. And that is when Valency has this other realization and that it's been over a year since her uh, diagnosis and she's feeling great. And oh, my God, what if Dr. Trent made a mistake? Can I just say as well about the train chapter? The opening line from that is just straight out of Grey's Anatomy, which I just been like incapacitated and watching mm-hmm. i've watched 14 seasons since wow last month um, well we'll tell so- we'll, i'll tell jim that you're enjoying it <laughs> oh yeah please pass that along i'm still a big fan i think this is my third rewatch uh it, the line goes oh, i wish i had a, a good meredith gray voice mm. i want you like imagine have you seen Grey's anatomy yeah i've seen a few episodes yeah okay right so imagine this is like the opening scene there's lots of slow-mo 30 seconds can be very long sometimes, long enough to work a miracle or a revolution. In 30 seconds, life changed wholly for Barney and Valency Snape. Yeah. And then at the end of the episode, she just goes, a lot can change in 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And there's music and then it goes to black. Yeah. yeah. yeah, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I see it. (laughs) Totally. I see it. So um, both Valency and Barney are, you know, thinking about what happened with the train, but no one's saying anything. It's just this elephant in the room. And um, I like the way that Amber talked about this last week. Um, She described, you know, Barney being unwilling to sort of uh, cross a boundary Mm. with Valency and actually, you know, discuss a and actually discuss, you know, what happened. So he takes off in his canoe and Valency goes back to see Dr. Trent, who is like, oh, hey, yeah. So that letter was actually meant for a Jane Sterling, like a totally different Sterling. Sorry about all that. (laughs) You're fine. 
Um, whoops, just kidding. And then uh, I feel like that happens. And then just, well, I feel like the train really kicks off like a lot of things. Like just suddenly mm-hmm. these last few chapters, it's just like event, 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 event. So then she leaves the doctor on her way back home. She meets this man who is waiting in a car on the shore in front of her blue castle. And it's Barney's father. And he is Dr. Redfern. What? You, we should have we should have guessed it, Laura, because I I looked it up and the name Redfern appears in the book 70 times. That's a lot. So like, oh, that's wow. not just that's not like it's not random. I robot level product placement. That's <laughs> man. I mean, maybe this is just Montgomery. Montgomery's really good here because I'm thinking about so many other things that the Redfern business really just caught me off guard. I was just like, what? Well, you immediately know he's a millionaire yeah. and that he's rich and like the the significance that he has on the family and mm-hmm. blah, 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 because she's laid all of that, all of that legwork and you didn't she even is. see it. I didn't even see it. Every day's leg day when you're <laughs> <laughs> It's not even legwork, is it? It's groundwork. What am I talking about? Sneaky. Yeah, I just didn't see it coming. I was uh, caught off guard. I was caught off guard by a couple things in the last few chapters. Um, I think I just wasn't expecting all of this backstory at the 11th hour because it felt like Mm -hmm. it had been so balanced up until now, like just the way that she was unveiling this plot. And then suddenly, sort of in the last third of the book, you just get hit like boom, boom, boom with all of these, all of these things. So Dr. Redfern spills the beans on Barney's broken engagement um, to this woman who is now uh, available again. Mm. And um, Valency just immediately sort of crumbles. And she is positive that Barney, you know, really can't truly love her. That She's just, you know, she's just convenient. Um, he's just mm-hmm. passing the time with her and that he thought that she was going to die. And so, yeah. So she leaves the pearls in his uh, bluebeard chamber and she heads back home and she tells her uncle, mother and cousins and cousin Stickles everything before she just heads back up to her like sad old room. And it's just like, I'm defeated. This is it. Um, except Barney turns up and then he gives his whole side of the story. And uh, I want to go back to something that Kate said in episode one that comparison she made between um, like Barney and Darcy and Wentworth and how Austin's men, just like Barney here, also get to tell their version of events. But that happens in letters in those novels, which is actually is like a really lovely thought. Anyway, everything is fine and great and wonderful, actually, because you know what? Barney loves her and he's a millionaire and also he's John Foster, her favorite writer. And you know what? They're going to build a house in Montreal and travel the world. And it's just like a really big, happy ending. That's like a Sunday with a whole jar of maraschino cherries on top. It's a lot. I was there for the big happy ending and that it was like world travel because that's something that we know Montgomery wanted to do Mm -hmm. so that for her and like there's all of that talk at the end uh sorry there's all that talk I think near the beginning where the family's talking about what happiness is and like life and freedom Mm -hmm. are balanced that's Valency's happiness and she gets it and now she has all of the means to do it Mm -hmm. it's a lot of an ending I think as a writer Mm -hmm. I probably would have like 
pulled way back, my instinct would have been like, okay, one of these things is going to happen. He's going to be John Foster, which I, so, okay. So I did at one point start to suspect that Barney was John Foster or like related to John Foster Mm -hmm. or like had beef with John Foster and was like in the, in the chamber, like writing his own book to try to be the next, you know, John Foster. Um, so there was one point I started to suspect that. But then when we met Dr. Redfern, I was like, no way. There's no way Barney's John Foster because that would just be too much. It's too much. And yeah. then he was. And I was like, what? What? So it really it really messed with me. But it was kind of it was great. I do like the big ending. And I think I'll get into a little bit more later as to, to why. But it did catch me off guard. I'll say that much. Here's the here's here's my Barney thoughts. Right. Here's a pro and a con to Barney. So I thought that the Blue Castle did a really good job of capturing the essence of the, like, she's all that style makeover. Mm-hmm. Like, a plain woman in classics becoming a beautiful woman is a trope. It happens all of the time. Right. But what Ellen Montgomery did was that Barney is like, you haven't, you haven't changed. Like, you're not more attractive, mm-hmm. but your soul is shining through. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's not like, she doesn't just get a haircut. She doesn't just get like a bit of a flush to her cheek. It's like. Yeah, it's way deeper than that. It's way deeper than just like taking off the glasses. It's her just being Mm -hmm. fulfilled and actually for the first time, like doing what she wants to do. Yeah, definitely. If Barney was really John Foster, Mm -hmm. if this was like a real thing, he ain't keeping the lid on that as long as he did. Intr- That's like it, yeah. the closest thing to a fairy tale this book gets to, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He would have, because there's the bit where Valency's like, oh, this new John Foster book came out, and she's like reading it to him. And I'm like, no way. He would have been like, oh, yo, listen, this new John Foster book's pretty good. Let me read you my favorite bits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He would have been so testing, I, I, I think, buy his, his latest yeah. book with her yeah i think mm-hmm. so too yeah it's a weird it's a weird one i feel like barney the barney that i know and like the john foster that i'm getting from the book are not the same man no maybe that's because and we'll talk about this a little bit later i kept like thinking about john foster as sort of like a henry david thoreau character would, is that the big would guy be really Dickinson? yeah who's like really yeah. annoying the- and so then when it the reveal happened i was like huh hmm i will i'll admit that was a bit where i thought thoreau's name was maybe john foster and that she was just talking about a real person <laughs> and then yeah. the reveal is it's barney and i was like i guess not no and then didn't didn't someone share in one of the facebook threads that john foster uh, all of the John Foster quotes are Montgomery's own writing. Yes, I, I'm obsessed with that. Of like, that's that's so good. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about the ending, your comments, and of course, John Foster after our interview. Hannah, do you want to tell everyone who we will be talking to today? Sure. So Sarah Mesley received her PhD from Northwestern and is a professor, writer and editor based in Los Angeles, California. Uh, She is faculty at USC, senior editor at large uh, at the Los Angeles Review of Books. If we worked there, you would be the editor at large and I would be the editor at small. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) 
Sorry, not Ella. And the editor of LARB channel Avidly and the NYU short story uh, and the NYU short book series Avidly Reads. And prior to arriving at USC, she held the postdoctoral fellowships in English at the University of Michigan and the University of California, Los Angeles. She is a 19th century Americanist by training and is interested, generally speaking, in the long history of the American novel and in the many ways popular culture can excite, estrange and surprise. Her writing about literature, gender, television and more has appeared in venues such as Studies in American Fiction, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Talking Points Memo and In Style magazine. She grew up in rural Iowa. Um, I will say that the Blue Castle has a special place in my heart, partly because it felt less known than the others. So mm -hmm. I felt like the way that I loved it was more particular to me. I didn't have other friends who loved that book, mm -hmm. although in my adulthood, I have found that many of my good friends do. Um, and it also stands out because of its bitterness. And uh, I feel got a sense, Ella Montgomery herself had such a hard life and people were so bad to her. And um, most of the time you feel her really trying to manage that in a, you know, <laughs> um, like an intentional way and I, or whatever, you know, like our kind of be positive speak would have today. And then I feel like in the blue castle, she really lets it fly. And um, so letting all that bad and in feeling into it is a special kind of release as a reader. I think there are not as many books about just really feeling crabby and resentful and not forgiving, mm -hmm. you know, um, at the end, Valancey, kind of makes her peace but like no you know like her family is still crappy at the end yeah, and she yeah. never you know and she never she's like you're still crappy mm. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I love that that the refusal of redemption um in that register I think that's a special quality that made me it's part of why I responded to the book how old were you when you first read it? Just curious I feel like we're really divided here mm -hmm. either people are just now coming to it during the pandemic for the first time, which I think is an interesting experience. Oh, what a um, gift. I know, right? Or um, like, it's like, you know, they've been with it for a really long time. So it's like yeah. one or the other. Oh yeah, always. I mean, I um, I got my first copy of Anne and Green Gables for Christmas when I was in second grade, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and I really remember reading most of the series in fourth grade at slumber parties, like being in the corner reading Anne of Whitley Poplars again. And I remember calling my mom at 11.30 p.m. and being like, I just finished it. Um, uh, so I think it was probably after that, I, you know, and so read all the Anne's, read all the Emily's, try and start tracking down the story girls. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but so I'm sure by sixth grade. Oh, wow. Okay, so pretty young. Yeah, I mean, I I'm a real completist. <laughs> so it's yeah, so it's you know, definitely by middle school, if not, but probably elementary school. Do you feel like maybe your relationship with the book has changed over time? Do you feel like you like it more? You like it less? You know? Uh, I think as an adult who 
has gone through some fairly seismic life changes. I have more of my own choosing and also not, um, but I have that much more respect for <laughs> how hard it is to do that, mm-hmm. um, the, to just completely step outside of the life that's been imagined for you, uh, like Valancy does. Uh, how do you pronounce your name? Valancy? Valancy? So my other pronunciation thing that I will say is that when I was a little girl, when my Aunt Nancy first started reading Anne of Green Girlville's to me, she pronounced it uh, as the town as Avonlea. So in oh, my really? mind, it was always Anne of Avonlea. Nice. And I have begrudgingly come to indoctrinate in myself into the Avonlea, but I still mm-hmm. don't think it's as pretty as the four-syllable version. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway... Valancy's. I both have more uh, understanding of why you would stay in some situation that was so crappy, mm-hmm. and more respect for the for the strength it would take, even in extreme situations, to get out of it, mm-hmm. and uh, why it would take such a complete uh, fantasy situation in order for that to happen. Yeah. Because it does feel impossible to get out of your life. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you had any like life lessons that you took from the Blue Castle, sort of like the way that you've, you know, kind of taken those from Anne. Yeah, I have been pondering that since you asked. Um, You know, so the thing about that book is there's the, the kind of, and, and I should say, I guess, that I love plot lines like this, where um, you get the news that means you're just, all of your circumstances, all bets are off. You, it's the freedom of an impossible situation. Um, and I have always loved that plot line. And I think it's still compelling. A friend of mine uh, recently was saying that she asked her students what would you do if you had an extra hour? And she, they all wrote it down and then she canceled class and told them to go do that thing. And oh, I like it was that. like this. I know, yeah. Um, and all of a sudden she tweeted it and got like 91,000 retweets and Chrissy, Tr- Chrissy Cheegan followed her. You know, it's like this, mm-hmm. the fantasy of what if you get extra time mm-hmm. uh, that's not counted for in a way that you demand. That's such a beautiful fantasy. But what's great about the book is that she gets the freedom from the fantasy and then the fantasy goes away and she has to stand up for it for herself. She has to still find a way to want it mm-hmm. without, she has to make the freedom um, it, if, in order for it to be real. And I don't know if I've fully achieved that, but I think that that is the lesson, right? Mm-hmm. That um, it's beautiful to think that somebody else could make it okay for you to want what you want, but ultimately you just have to stand it and live with it and deal with the repercussions. Mm-hmm. And so that is, I think, something that especially women wrestle with. Mm-hmm. Can I ask for what I want and then live with what it costs? Um, and, you know, uh, Blue Castle, it's still a fantasy, you know, just at that moment where she's going to take responsibility for it. Oh, he's a millionaire, you know, so like another fantasy comes in. Yeah. Uh, but there is that kind of miserable moment at the end where she's like, well, what do I do? You know, mm-hmm. go home to my mom, do this. Um, 
And I think that's the, that's the life lesson part of the book, which I don't think that we have to get life lessons out of what we enjoy, but I think like, that's the thing that I would want to learn better. Is there like a note that you would give Montgomery, like an edit or something you'd want to change, or would you just keep it the same? You know, so I have had long conversations with a friend who, a good friend who really also likes this book Mm -hmm. as to how we feel about the nature writing in it. Oh, interesting. Um, Tell me about that. So, yeah. So, you know, it's a book uh, in which the main character is constantly reading her favorite writer, who it turns out is her husband. Um, And so there are these long passages and that's where Montgomery is really pouring out her um into those passages and you can tell that Montgomery really likes that nature writing mm-hmm. the very purple nature writing I never know how I feel about it gotcha <laughs> um I am really it, the psychodrama achieving your desires or learning how to relate to your desires than looking at the plants mm-hmm. personally <laughs> um so yes, so um, but I but then if you took it out, um, it, it's a main way that the character is something besides bitter, or the Valancey is the character right. that the, the beauty that's in her life, um, and it's one of the ways that she's really connected to Anne, which she's not in any other way, um, which is loving these, uh, thinking about the world in really beautiful textured ways. Um, any characters or scenes or um, plot points that just like really resonate with you that you really love? I really love to think about her low cut dress. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and the green um, and ha- has this particular kind of style in it that awful Olive would never be able to pull off. Mm-hmm. Um and then the scene when she's driving with Barney and they come across the uncle and help him out. And he's so horrified. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it completely. But also just the small moment. So the dress, I really, I really think about that dress. That's one of the dresses in Montgomery. I think about the most along with the first uh, brown sleeve dress, um, or the brown puff sleeve dress in uh, the first book. But um, also when she asks Barney to marry uh, her and at first she says and I just right before I got on the phone with you went to look it up to make sure this was right she says I want you to marry me uh, for two reasons because I'm crazy about you and she can't quite get it together that first time to say I love you Mm -hmm. and then at the end she's like no I love you and she makes herself look at him (laughs) like oh just the difference between not being able to say that and then getting up the strength to say it I feel like is some Montgomery really perfectly hitting that beat of even at the moment where she's asked him to marry her and she feels like she has nothing else to lose she finds that she does have something else to lose and it still takes courage at that moment um which I guess it kind of parallels the other thing that I was saying about the plot more generally is you know you, you can get the fantasy but if you really want it you have to ask for it and you have to look at what you want mm-hmm. um And I just think that's great. Now, another question that I have (laughs) asked everyone and um, divided in our Facebook group, but not divided amongst our interviewees. Do you think that they had a romantic relationship? 
I mean, as in, did they have sex? They totally yes. had sex. They had the best sex. <laughs> they were just loving it. Yes, mm-hmm. completely. Like, hold up in there and, like, all of this discussion of, like, the fog and the cats and the blanket. Yeah. Yes. No, that is deep, erotic pleasure being had completely. <laughs> okay, so I have two thoughts about this. One is a book in which people have sex bad mm-hmm. sex um, sissy that's the whole plot of the novel is that balancey goes to help sissy who had a baby out of childhood and dealing with the repercussions of that so number one people this is a book that definitely acknowledges sex is real unlike maybe some other ones and number two she that's what Valancey's asking for 1000 percent she's like would you marry me <laughs> you know she's right she wants sex like that's definitely what she's want she's like you're hot I want to get it on let's do it this is this is the way that I can ask that yeah um yeah and it's great not only do they have sex they have great sex it's clear (laughs) (laughs) I will like harbor no objection on this point and the thing that I would say too is that actually I think in a lot of the other Montgomery books I, and I think I talk about this in the uh, in the things I learned from loving Anne of Green Gables that people talk about being queer and kindred spirits. And I think the Anne of Green Gables books are very much less interested in erotic mm-hmm. attachment for the most part, that it's kind of this diffuse um, pleasure and just respect and kind of friendly intimacy. Um, but this, The Blue Castle is about wanting to have good sex. Yeah, and and the way that if you all of a sudden get to be freed of the fears of a future, that's one of, in this pre-birth control moment, that's one of the things that you get to have. Mm -hmm. And we're back. So every episode, I have been recommending other books and other authors that you should be checking out if you like The Blue Castle So first up, there was Isabella Valency Crawford, and then there was Pauline Johnson. And today I have two authors I want to discuss. And um, I read both of these authors alongside The Blue Castle. And I think that their works like just really helped me sharpen my feelings about Montgomery Mm. and The Blue Castle and all of that good stuff. So here we go. So first up is Susan Finnamore Cooper, who I mentioned last week during my discussion with Amber. Now, Susan was born in 1813 in Scarsdale, New York. She was very well traveled. She went abroad often. She actually went to boarding school in France, where she studied botany and zoology. Her father was the novelist James Finnamore Cooper. And so he was the author of books like The Last of the Mohicans. Have you have you heard of that book? That's a Tom Cruise movie. Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. I haven't seen it. Oh, my God. I have heard of it. That movie, like, I want to know if anyone else experienced this. Like, that was the movie that every history teacher, like, put on if they were having a sick day or, like, or if there was a sub or something. I have seen this movie only in school at least nine million times. (laughs) So I don't know what's going on with this film. I can barely remember it because I would just, like, put my head down. Just say, okay, here's a period to sleep. But anyway, 
Anyway, James Fenimore Cooper, that's him. Um, he really encouraged his daughter to write. And actually, she worked for him for quite a while as his private secretary and helped him transcribe all of his books as well. Mm. James edited Susan's first novel, which is called Eleanor Willis, A Tale. And that is actually available on Project Gutenberg. And um, I really want to read it. I haven't yet. But I know that it was panned when it came out. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't garner such good reviews. Um, And the book also was attributed to James, even though it was published under a pen name, Imabel Penfeather. So I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, it's a weird pen name. I think that I guess people thought maybe he was trying to tap into like a more female market or write some sort of like romantic book under this female name. But um, I guess actually looking through his papers and everything, um, it's very clear that the authorship was actually his, Mm. his daughter. And he edited the book and he also wrote like an author's preface or an mm. editor's preface as well. In 1850, Susan published Rural Hours. It's a nature journal that she kept over the course of two years. And it gives me major, major Dorothy Wordsworth vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's just a little bit more documentarian. Um, but it is sort of, you know, poetic and romantic, but not not too. It's not it's definitely not John Foster like Montgomery territory. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just really lovely. I I really adore it. I've been reading an entry a day during lockdown and it's just really, really soothing. Highly recommend Rural Hours. Uh, It is not on Project Gutenberg. You do have to order it. um, And I will put links out there as to where you can order it and some more stuff about uh, Susan Finnemore Cooper. She's really, really fascinating. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. Um, Another guy who was a huge fan was Charles Darwin, who said in a letter to Asa Gray that uh, he recommended Rural Hours. His quote is, talking of books, I'm in the middle of one which pleases me, Miss Cooper's Journal of a Naturalist. Who is she? She seems a very clever woman and gives a capital account of the battle between our and your weeds. I like when people say capital. We should bring that back. Capital. Yeah, it's capital. Yeah, should we do it? I maybe you can bring it back, but I it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd sound like I'd sound really pompous. It's capital. Um another person who was perhaps a fan was Henry David Thoreau. Um, I'm going to read this passage actually from Cooper's Wikipedia page because I just thought that this was very interesting and needed to be shared. So it says, according to a journal kept by Henry David Thoreau, he read part of Rural Hours and circumstantial evidence suggests that some of the most memorable passages from Thoreau's 1854 book Walden may have been suggested by several of Cooper's own passages on loons, wild berries, and the perceived bottomlessness of the lake and the seasonal breaking of the ice. Interesting. So in America, we are made to read like Walden. Like it's like, it's like no. a great American Walden, novel. Thoreau, like, okay. no. 
definitely not at school. I'm not like, I always feel like when I say stuff like that, it's like, I'm not saying people won't have heard of them. Not at the schools I went to. I, um, it's very much like a thing here. It's part of the American Mm -hmm. curriculum. It's one of the great American books. Um, and I, you know, after reading that, I was like, that's really interesting. Let me go back and read it to see if I can just get any, like, Cooper essence, like, coming through. Mm-hmm. And um, I made this attempt to re- reread it. And I say reread. Like, that's brave of you. I was supposed to read it during my sophomore year of high school, but I just, like, didn't. I couldn't get through it. All I could think about was, you know, how Thoreau went out into the woods to write and live off the land. But like his mom still did his laundry and brought him food. And and meanwhile, Cooper and all of these other women writers that we cover on this mm-hmm. show, right, like had to do household chores. She had to write up all of her father's manuscripts, like on top of her own writing. And I mm-hmm. just was so angry because I was like, man, men have so much time to think. <laughs> Thoreau well, had just, so much time to think. William Gaskell's library and office at the front of the house mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Gaskell's desk next to the dining room table next to the servant's yeah. pantry. Yeah. Right? It's all of that. It's all of that. Um, and I was just kind of mad because I was like, man, that was so like missing from my education, right? Just love, I would love for someone to teach these two books side by side and then talk about their lifestyles like side by side. I think that would be really, really interesting. Maybe that's something that we can even like cover because um, eventually we're going to make it to Concord. Thoreau's mm-hmm. in that whole set, you know, with Bronson Alcott and all those guys out there. So. Maybe one day we will actually um, cover this on the show Um, and I'll try to give Walden another read or there is a video game of Walden. I might try to play the Walden video game. Maybe that's a better option for me. Mm -hmm. You're like Henry David and you go out into the woods to like to think and write about nature. Should we get a Twitch? Should we do a Twitch? Maybe we should. Yeah. It might get real boring real fast. Let's throw down the gauntlet and have a Twitch. <laughs> Let's throw down the gauntlet. That's the T-shirt. That's the T-shirt. I get it. <laughs> All right. That'll be one of our summer bad live events. I think that'll be good. So another author that I want to briefly mention here is novelist, journalist, and editor and teacher, Jesse Redmond Fawcett. And I'm really hoping that we will be covering her in depth during our passing read along. Um, Fawcett was known as the midwife to the Harlem Renaissance because she was the editor of The Crisis. And she helped Mm. publish and guide the careers of people like Langston Hughes, Jean Toomer, and Nella Larson. So um, I recently read her book, The Chinaberry Tree, alongside The Blue Castle. And I think there were some really interesting similarities. Um, I will say in general, like Fawcett is a bit sentimental and poetic, which some of her critics actually like went after her for. But I really I really like it. Um, She's also um, very attuned to nature. Mm -hmm. And like Montgomery, she's really, really good at exploring those like dust pile moments from childhood and how they like impact the protagonist as adults. The kind of similar writing styles there. It's really interesting. Um, 
Like the Blue Castle, the Chinaberry Tree centers on a spinster named Laurentine. Never heard that name before, but very interesting, the name Laurentine. <laughs> like Valency, I was like, totally brand new name to me. Um, and Laurentine lives at home with her mother, who is way more loving than Valency's mother, but no less oppressive. Like this environment mm-hmm. is is very similar, but it it's just... Uh, it's a different anxiety. It's still out of fear. There is love there. But yeah, it, it's not as abusive, but it's it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, Laurentine also has this pretty and popular cousin who actually comes to live with her. And that is the catalyst for the sort of like drama and family secrets to be revealed that are revealed and that sort of like kicks off the China Berry tree. Um, One interesting thing about this book is that Laurentine is mixed race and because of her family history and the way she looks and who her parents are, she is something of an outcast in the town. And my mind kept bouncing back and forth between these two women, between Laurentine and Valency, um, Mm. who were so like melancholy and repressed and it made me think of that othering language that is used to describe Valency's physical appearance in the Blue Castle. And I could just feel myself strongly relating to that outsider element in both stories. Um, of course, I have mentioned on the show before that I am Black and a very light-skinned Black woman at that. Um, and I also grew up in very you know white neighborhoods. And my appearance has always brought a certain element of like unwanted attention or just tension into the room. And I just could feel that strongly in both stories. And when you think about like the way that Valency is policed, mm-hmm. her tone is policed. Yes. Like I know that's like a really on the Her notes tone and her time and her everything. Her tone, her time, mm-hmm. how she wears her hair mm-hmm. is dictated to by someone else. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, like everyone has an opinion on it. Um, there's the scene where she puts there's dress that she puts on and everyone like the way she feels about herself like she hasn't been allowed to think about herself in that way mm-hmm. before and then it's like reclaiming like how she looks and she looks like her and it's not like isn't you know I and I think like the the Barney bit of the beauty and he's like this guy wants to paint you and yeah. it like would never have occurred to her so no I yeah I really get that yeah. I, it would be interesting if there was an adaptation that it, like it could easily explore race in this town mm. and Valency and her family. And I think it would be be very, very interesting because I do feel like those themes are there. And um, they were absolutely, of course, there in the, the China Berry Tree. What you were describing with uh, clothes is actually a major thing in the China Berry Tree as well, because Laurentine is um, a seamstress and designer. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff about how she presents herself and how she thinks other people look at her. And it's very self-conscious in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that I was then also sort of projecting and picking up on as well with the Blue Castle. So I thought that was actually really interesting. Um I really liked this read of the China Berry Tree. I don't think it's Fawcett's best. So if you are just starting with her, I'm not sure this is like the best place to start. I don't think it's her strongest work. Um, but she is just like a lovely writer and has such a great way with words and just anecdotes. I do feel like she's very similar to Montgomery. 
but I would like to circle back and talk about her a little bit later on this fall once we have our passing read-along scheduled, um, because I do think actually pairing passing with her book Comedy American Style would be great. So yeah, that's my spiel on Jessie Fawcett. It's interesting that as I think this connection has occurred to me a couple of times, but like just thinking of the Blue Castle in relation to other books, um, it's something we'll go into more with the listener comments. But when you said about how you would tell it with this like othering, like racial angle, and that's always something that is said about Mansfield Park. Mm hmm. Right. And how like if we were if people were to like retell it or explore it and it's done a lot in like Austin fan fictions. And yeah, so I think mm-hmm. it's just all of these things like for me, the Blue Castle, just it. everything comes back to Austin for me because I'm not very <laughs> widely read. So here's some thoughts about Austin. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Um, so people in the Facebook group will know, but I got ill in December. I am currently still in it. If I get one more email saying, I hope you're feeling better or get well soon, I'm going to scream (laughs) because it's not going to happen. So I uh, and I listened to the Blue Castle audio book at like a really low point where I couldn't really move. So I was just lying there listening to the Blue Castle because I couldn't physically hold a book, just lying there thinking about being ill and being ill and listening to a book about people who are ill Mm -hmm. and thinking about being ill and talking about being ill. And I just was like trapped in it. It's all I could think about while listening to it. Um, I did try and find an essay about the way Montgomery portrays illness. I kept thinking about that story in the Alpine path where she's nearly killed by eating a sausage, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite Montgomery (laughs) story. It's a pretty good story. But (laughs) But instead, all I've kept finding with just like articles about how she killed herself and her struggle with mental health. Mm-hmm. So that that's all I could find. Um, I did end up finding um, an essay called In Sickness and in Health, Jane Austen's Metaphor by Pamela Steele. Um, so you've got to bear with me on this tangent. I just, I read it anyway. I was like, I'll just see what this, I'll see what this is about. And then as I was reading it, I did think a lot of it related to Montgomery and also just a lot of books that we read Mm -hmm. and also about how we still treat women in medicine today. (laughs) So Steele says that um, unbounded energy in Austin's work is linked with deficiency in character or understanding, fever with learning and debility with wisdom and a tender conscience. And she goes on to kind of, uh, she goes on to compare like Mr. Parker and Marianne Dashwood's tendency towards action over consideration, uh, Louisa Musgrove's inability to back down or be persuaded is punished with a nasty fool, Tom Bertram's refusal to accept responsibility for his family is remedied by getting like a horrible fever, um, there's a line he had suffered and he had learned to think. And we know that Austin's characters are like constantly pre- preoccupied with their health, mm-hmm. uh, the health of everyone else. Like every ailment, real or imagined, is commented on every single time. They're always discussed. Advice is given. Doctors are frequently called for. It's just like Mm -hmm. Austin is writing about health all the time. Yeah. And the essay goes on to say Austin's portraits of thoughtful convalescence agree well with the picture of 18th century medicine that we derive from the literature of the period. 
for the medical regimens of cupping, purging and lowering diets, portions of Mr Woodhouse's thin gruel perhaps, may have produced some remarkably quiet patients. So in the 18th century, there's this like relation with being ill and like bed rest and having time to think Mm -hmm. and like, like this learning lesson. And Austin really does use a near death experience as this like teaching moment. And it's always the wilder characters who become more moderate. Right. And what I found really interesting, and I think the thing that struck a chord with me reading this, was that in being ill, or in being told that she's ill, Valency actually is finding her voice. So unlike, it's it's not producing a remarkably quiet patient, it's producing a vocal, independent, like finally living patient instead. Mm-hmm. It isn't whether or not Valency is ill that is interesting, but how she identifies with being ill, mm-hmm. how she views the women around her who are ill and how they are viewed and how people treat them. Um, so the first invalid that we meet in the Blue Castle is her cousin Gladys, who is presented to us as a tall, thin lady who admitted that she had a sensitive disposition and would describe minutely the tortures of her neuritis. She, I think she's a bit of a Gillian, which is a niche Shirley Valentine reference, and I don't know if anyone will get it. But the the joke with that is that if you've got a headache, she's got a brain tumour. Okay, gotcha. Which I really relate to. <laughs> Um, uh, and she's always coming out with crackers like well my heart is like that it's been like that for years Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. like you're ill well i i've been ill too i am ill right now uh in a and it says in a tone that implied no one else had any business even to have a heart and the truth is like yes cousin gladys probably is laying it on a bit thick Mm -hmm. montgomery says that she had neuritis or what she called neuritis and it jumped about from one part of her body to the another it was a convenient thing if anybody wanted her to go somewhere she didn't want to go she had neuritis in her legs and always if any mental effort was required she would have neuritis in her head you can't think with neuritis in your head my dear and i think that this like really vivid skewering of the neurotic female patient is great writing Mm -hmm. right and we immediately get a sense of cutting gladys as being like a mrs bennett or a mary musgrove Mm -hmm. and it immediately immediately sets Dr. Trent up as an expert and someone to be trusted because he is right. We're assuming about cousin Gladys not necessarily being that ill. And that is completely necessary to the plot. Mm -hmm. It's why we trust his diagnosis without a second opinion because a woman self-diagnosing couldn't possibly be correct when a male doctor says otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And a male doctor who is described, by the way, as being an absent-minded old fellow who is practising in the middle of nowhere and is rumoured to be retiring soon. Right. <laughs> so Montgomery is even being like, you know, yeah, come on. <laughs> we get the clues. And so, yeah, I have a big issue. I have a big issue with Dr. Trent. And I'm projecting onto Dr. Trent, but I have a big issue with him. 10 years before the story starts, he dismisses cousin Gladys by saying that her neuritis is all imaginary and that she enjoyed it and he upsets the whole family and they won't go to him. And Valency almost doesn't go to him because he's what she's worried that he's going to say the same thing to her. Mm-hmm. And she should be worried because that is what doctors do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 
but she does go to see him and he does examine her and he sends her his diagnosis by letter and he tells her that she's going to die. And when a year later she takes the letter back to him after the train accident, he doesn't even remember who she is and looks at her blankly and fumbled among his recollections. He then admits to being a snivelling coward when it comes to telling a woman face to face that she's going to die soon, which at once robs her of the opportunity to discuss the fact that she is dying and to ask questions about the fact that she is dying and introduces the opportunity for the sort of clerical error that means that Valency receives the wrong letter. Mm -hmm. And the last we... The last thing we hear about him is that he thinks all women are foolish and then he dismisses her from his mind. So this isn't just a case of like butterfingers, like this isn't one mistake. Like the way women are treated in medicine are inherently bad. And I really do think Montgomery is trying to get that across. Yeah, I think absolutely, especially book ending it with that. Well, women are just foolish. Mm -hmm. It's not on me. I'm not taking accountability for any of this. And also, maybe she should thank me anyway. Like, you know, like I did her a service. Mm -hmm. I think he sees himself as the hero, actually, at the end of that. And I think whether or not the letter is sent correctly, whether or not Cousin Gladys or Mary Musgrove or any woman is ill, the way that we write about women's ailments, the way they have been written about by women and men, and then the way we uh, discuss that representation is really important. Mm -hmm. I actually... You might want to cut this. I found some of the discussion around the cousin quite difficult. And I found Mm -hmm. some of the discussion around her illness quite difficult. um, Because there are still women who are not being diagnosed properly. Mm -hmm. Because what is happening to them is being dismissed. I was told that what was happening to me was panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and so it's just, yeah, I just, (laughs) not everyone who says they're ill is lying, basically. And so I really, I went through every single Cousin Gladys quote, just to, I was like, maybe she is not that bad, Mm -hmm. but she is definitely. (laughs) Cousin Gladys is laying on. (laughs) We can have that one. And to that point, so still references Mansfield Park. She references Mansfield Park's Fanny as having chronic fatigue. And chronic fatigue is an illness which is predominantly diagnosed in women. ME-research.org cites that the ratio is four to one female to male while Mary Crawford is constantly commenting on her own strength and her own desire for movement. In the story, Fanny's weakness is used to keep her in place and Mary's health makes her desirable and like lets her see the world and she goes horseback riding and, you know, all of the things that Fanny can't do, but still does point out that it's Fanny's timidity, which is presented hand in hand with her frailty. You can't have the one without the other in Fanny that prevents her from blundering into mistakes the way everyone else does, the way Mm -hmm. the more active and healthy characters do. So her illness saves her reputation, but I do think we can agree that if she had spoken, if she'd been vocal about being ill, she would have been ridiculed. Yeah. And so the the story is just that you suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. It's like Eleanor versus Marianne. Like there's even a line that, in Sense and Sensibility that still references where it's like um, Eleanor didn't spread it about. So if you think about emotion as like a disease, Marianne mm-hmm. gives it to everyone. Yeah. But Eleanor really just suffers in silence. So, yeah. And this isn't in the essay, 
But there is a lot to be said about people who can afford to be ill in Austin's work and people who are afforded afforded sympathy in Montgomery's. So in Sanderson, Lady Denham is really hesitant to have a doctor in the town because she doesn't want her staff taking stick days and imagining themselves ill. Mm-hmm. Ill health in that sense becomes a luxury and a pastime for the elite. And being ill in this way, it was an activity. It was something that women could do to get sympathy and to get attention and to get mm-hmm. care and to be present in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Because how else were they going to stay like... Right. How else were gonna, people going to hold on to them? They would just be in the and back room. respectable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a respectable way of gaining attention. And also getting drugs legally, right? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, there's that that's too, what yeah. they were giving mm-hmm. them. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that there were women who complained about being ill and miraculously feeling better when it suited them. We also know that... Um, I will say too, that they are still diagnosing people with hysteria and neurosis and all of those things they've just given it a different name and they still don't research it and they still don't understand it and they still don't treat it Mm -hmm. so like it has not changed and it's disgusting yeah (laughs) back to the blue castle we do know that Balancey's family rally around and tolerate cousin gladys's illness but when a woman who is an acquaintance of the family is actually dying there's no help and that's sissy uh cecilia so two years ago, Dr. Marsh had given her only six months to live. Her lungs were hopelessly diseased, but she was still alive. Nobody went to see her. Women would not go to Roaring Abel's house. And when Balancey leaves to actually care for Sissy, um, Sissy is described as being a beautiful little thing. She resembles a wilting flower. Balancey's family... Um, Valency's family tell her that she's lost her senses in going. Cousin Stickles even comments on the fact that Valency hasn't taken her flannel petticoat, which is concern for her health, mm-hmm. but isn't concerned about the woman who's dying that right. Valency is going to care for because she's like a shunned woman. Mm-hmm. So the care isn't there when someone is actually ill. They even send a doctor to Valency and the doctor tells her that her mother is more in need of her than the dying girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think that in this book, illness and dying and dead are different things. Yeah. And one does not lead to the other because Montgomery is making it very clear that characters in her book are ill and have been ill and can be ill and not die. And there are characters who die. Right. And the way that the character who dies is described is super different. Illness and dying are an inconvenience to be tolerated and funerals become a thing to look forward to, mm-hmm. at least for Valency's family. Um, it's evident in the thinking uh, her mother, it's evident when her mother thinks it would really have been so much easier to bear if Valency had died, she could have worn mourning then. Mm-hmm. And also the family go to Sissy's funeral. So yeah. they won't help her while she's ill, but they all turn up to the funeral. Yeah, that way they and get the- to share in the victimhood. In a Mm -hmm. sense, in the loss, but without the work. Yeah, exactly. And the last comparison that I want to make is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but women do not die of illnesses in Austin's work. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Maybe I'm... No, I can't either. But they do in Gaskell. Mm -hmm. And they do in Montgomery. I know that, I know that obviously Henry's mum, women have died, but you don't see it. It doesn't happen on the page. But death in Montgomery and Gaskell's work 
happens and it often happens to women who have lived a hard life and it's a relief and it's a chance to like it's an end of something Mm -hmm. and it's an end to suffering um so sissy dies and valency is not sorry uh she was only sorry for all her suffering in life but nobody could ever hurt her again valency had always thought death dreadful but sissy had died so quietly so pleasantly and at the very last something had made up to her for everything she was lying there now in her white sleep looking like a child beautiful all the lines of shame and pain gone but the thing i think is interesting with death in the blue castle is that sissy is constantly compared to a flower to a child she's constantly called beautiful and it's almost like she is worthy of death Mm -hmm. but but cousin gladys isn't worthy of compassion for you know i can't that aren't the cousin gladys thing the mary musgrove thing the mrs bennett thing like I don't know. I mean, those women could just be ill. Like that, it could also yeah. just be a thing that they're ill and and that men and women are so conditioned to think badly of people who are neurotic mm-hmm. and cannot help. Like health anxiety is a, a real thing that people have, mm-hmm. you know, like. And so I think the way that I will be reading stuff like this, just from this experience of listening to the blue castle while being very ill and not knowing what's going on i think is really going to change how i think about and talk about being ill and also just how i read about any woman being comedically ill in a book Mm -hmm. and that is the end of my rant (laughs) well i was about to say the one big thing that we have not really mentioned here is the um is dr redfern and sort of this whole this whole thing of like you can't even trust the medicine. It's just packaging. It's just this mm-hmm. trusty look man on a on a label um, that says that he can cure everything. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we should at some point, because um, we've had conversations about this off mic about Sanditon and sort of like mm-hmm. the comment that Austin is making on health or potentially could have been making about on health. When I read that fragment, that's like the strongest bit for me. And that was something that I was disappointed, like really not to see represented in the television show, because I just think um, it's interesting and like it feels modern and relevant to like what's happening with us now. Like Hannah and I had a whole conversation about Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and sort of the way Mm -hmm. that like healthcare is marketed towards us now like those luxury healthcare essentially mm-hmm. um with what Gwyneth is selling you right that's not for women like me and you <laughs> oh, who right, are struggling with our not. insurance companies this is for women who have disposable disposable income to to buy into these these things that may or may not have benefits Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched a really interesting video on which was breaking down Gwyneth Paltrow's like beauty routine, and she kept talking about how she's all non-toxic and she wouldn't put toxic things in her body. But um, the video kept getting cut with Botox commercials, and the lady that was like doing the breakdown was like, "You cannot advertise toxin-free beauty and advertise Botox at the same time." <laughs> yeah. I am not necessarily like against botox i'm just saying that you are you are sending very different messages Mm -hmm. and how are people meant to make how are meant to how are people meant to know what clean 
really means. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a buzzword. Right. Dr. Redfern, break it down for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that in our Facebook group, and I know you've just addressed it just now with Dr. Trent, that there was a question of like, you know, would you have gone for a second opinion um, personally? Um, within, I know you said personally, mm-hmm. within the book, I do think that Montgomery lays a lot of groundwork so that we don't ask that question. Like, she can't go to the family doctor because it's a secret. Mm-hmm. Like, Dr. Doctor Trent is portrayed to us as being like the straight guy as opposed to uh, Cousin Gladys who we're already kind of set up to think is unreliable. Right. And so when you put the two together, you're like, unreliable, reliable. Mm -hmm. And she almost doesn't go to Dr. Trent and then she does. So if you think about all of the emotional energy that someone is exerting to go to see someone who they are concerned is going to dismiss them out of hand and then they don't dismiss them out of hand and they actually listen to them and they say, yes, that thing you're feeling, like he doesn't diagnose her with something unrelated to her symptoms. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I don't really understand why she, like, and I know when he says, why didn't you get a second opinion? The second opinion thing is to cover his back. That's yeah. what a second opinion yeah. is. That's for his benefit. That isn't for her benefit. That's because of things like clerical errors. That's because of letters going to the wrong people. That's because of him missing something. It's got nothing to do with her. Right. So no, I totally get why Valency didn't go for a second opinion. And also... From a personal note, personally, would I go for a second opinion? I love having free healthcare, but if I have to listen to one more doctor give an opinion without reading my medical notes, I'm going to scream. I don't mm. think they're useful. <laughs> I just want to talk to one doctor twice. That's all I want to yeah, do. I just yeah. want to have an ongoing conversation. I mean, if you go to mm-hmm. the doctor and you receive this diagnosis that you have a year to live and your life is great, you're like, wait, I have to fight this. Mm-hmm. I have to do everything I can to to stop this but for valency is like okay i she just accepts it because she's like this is this is my life and now i'm gonna make the most of it Mm -hmm. so for her it's a it's a freedom i i don't think she wants to waste any time obviously going from doctor to doctor you know, bringing all of that attention, obviously, that her family is going to to bring onto her. Um, and they're going to use it, that information to control her even more. Mm-hmm. So it totally makes sense to me as to why she absolutely does not go for a second opinion and why she just sort of immediately accepts it and, and kind of moves on with her life um, for the best. But um, yeah, I think second opinions are tough. I had this a lot when I was like on my fertility journey and I got a different mm-hmm. response from every single doctor. I had a very Dr. Trent response with one doctor uh, who told me that I absolutely could not get pregnant. And then I got pregnant and they went, well, I don't know. I mean, why didn't you go mm-hmm. for another opinion? <laughs> so obviously Hannah and I had a lot of feelings, but so did you. And we have a couple of comments to share now. So first up, Valerie O said, I always wonder what Barney is doing in Bluebeard's chamber that makes a chemical smell so bad that Valency can smell it in the house. She mentions seeing a lot of weird utensils on his desk, but what on earth is he doing besides writing? I, um, I don't know why I thought this at one point, just retroactively. I was like, what if he was in there, like trying to like debunk 
Dr. Redfern's tonics or something. Like he's so hung up Mm. about it. I don't know. I have no idea what he's doing in there. Maybe he's doing some nature experiments in there. I I don't know what he's got going on in there. I mean, we know it's just a red herring, right? Like we know that that's Mm -hmm. what it is. Um, But yeah, what, what was going on in that shed? There was also a lot of chat about just like what this book is, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Neve was saying that the ending felt like a fairy tale, uh, not only in the heroine's reward, but in the juxtaposition with the villains at the end. There's Uncle Benjamin being enjoyably awful and Olive showing her hypocrisy again. I must confess to having quite a soft spot for cousin Georgiana and maybe someday she will rebel too, we can hope. I mean, Valency entrusting her with the pets is a good sign. Yeah, I think so. It means a lot to send your pets to go and live with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Joy A took it a step further by saying that she had been reading the book wrong for years because it's a fairy tale. Like, it is a fairy tale, not that it feels like a fairy tale, uh, rather than a domestic comedy. Yeah, so Joy's entire comment, she said, think about it. Valency is a poor drudge treated cruelly by her family. Then she falls under a curse, runs away with a mysterious figure to a land of enchantment where every day is wonderful and she doesn't have to work. Illness is banished and she becomes beautiful. She is tested by the mysterious figure who asks her if she wants a big house and if she wants a million dollars and if she wants to go to fancy parties and proves her love through her responses to all of these tests. Then her life is in danger and a mysterious figure saves her, cementing their bond. Valency is then dragged back temporarily to her life of drudgery before the mysterious figure rescues her and is transformed through her love into a rich and handsome prince. And then they live happily ever after. There's a fairy tale language throughout the book that supports this. Barney calls Valency an elf. Her uncle says she is like a changeling. Her old life was waiting for her like an ogre. And as we discussed in the last thread, the book seems to be set in in an indeterminate past where cars are new and bobs aren't in yet, but it all feels a little hazy. Once I read it as a fairy tale, the ridiculous elements became a feature, not a bug, and I enjoyed the book even more. I do. I agree. And I do actually really love what she said about time being hazy. I Mm. thought about that quite a bit when I was reading the book. Like, when are we? Because I don't think we have any references to the war. Um, I I don't think there's many things that other than the car. I was surprised when the car arrived. Yeah, I don't think we we really have set in stone time. And I almost wonder if that is a reaction to World War One. Um, I think that's a question we're all kind of throwing out there now, everyone that's writing or working in publishing or media of like, how are we going to handle the pandemic and mm-hmm. in literature and film? And is it going to be hazy? Are we, is it just kind of like gloss oh, over I hope it? So. Right. Or are God, we going to address want everything it? to be about it. Yeah. I lived through it. I don't want to watch teen movies about it. I mean, I kind of feel like that's what's happening here, right? Like this mm-hmm. is this post-war novel of like, I lived through this. I just can't. I think as well this this is the this is the comment the other comment that was making me think about Mansfield Park and just like mm-hmm. um cuz I know that you had said someone who'd compared it to Northanger Abbey 
and I have my whole thing about how I think Northanger Abbey is like a precursor to Mansfield Park and that Austen is just taking further all of the ideas that she's planting in that novel. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me to hear someone compare Northanger Abbey to um, The Blue Castle, Mm -hmm. but like the book it made me think of was was Mansfield Park, except that uh, Fanny doesn't escape the drudge. She stays with Valency's family. Yeah. She marries into the family. <laughs> she marries into the she family. She doesn't get the She the marries prince. Uncle Benjamin. <laughs> Ruth said, I would love to know who wrote the first woman stuck with her shoe and can't move with a moving vehicle coming towards her trope. I've seen it in several movies and TV shows. And of course, these women are always rescued by the male lead. But this is the oldest book that I remember having read that in. Um, I totally want to know that too. Um, that was such a visual scene. Valency on the train tracks getting stuck and then Barney rescuing her. It was so emotional and visual and it makes you see why uh, Montgomery is such a great writer to adapt for film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, such a great dramatic moment. I know that she also really loved the movies as well. So probably came from there. Um, but yeah, I saw that like a lot as a kid in cartoons and TV shows and movies. And I thought that was going to be like a problem as a woman, (laughs) but I have not experienced that yet. This coming out in the 1920s makes me think that this is definitely something that she has seen. Oh yeah. In a movie. Mm -hmm. In a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But also Mary P pointed out that this could be another fairy tale reference. Um, So just think like in the original tale, like Cinderella's shoe gets stuck in the tar and then she has to leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously in that. And the movement, the car is the prince, uh, but she yeah. saves herself. She just leaves the shoe and goes. Um, makes me think of the fantastic movie, uh, has aged really well, The Wedding Planner, starring uh, Jennifer Lopez and Matthew McConaughey mm-hmm. and her foot gets stuck and there's like a dumpster, dumpster just coming down the her. hill. Mm, yeah, just I maybe think that was inspired by Ellen Montgomery. <laughs> but, you know, we'll keep that. That's just, yeah, that's speculation. So that's all we have this week for the Blue Castle. Um, we do have one more episode next week on Ellen Montgomery and regionalism. And, of course, we will mention and maybe discuss the Blue Castle a little bit. Um, but, yeah, we are pretty much... We've done this book. We figured it out. We did it all. What's going to happen? We're going to have like squirreled it away and we'll just do what we do with every book. And then like we'll do another read along and we'll be like, oh, this really reminds me of that mm-hmm. thing from the Blue Castle, which in turn really reminds, you know, Absolutely. it's just every, everything's connected. It's all connected. I'm sure we will discuss it on the show again someday soon. But um, the next mini series that you're going to get from us will be centered around adaptation. Of course, we have other things going on, right? We have a book available called Why She Wrote. You can purchase that from Chronicle or Chronicle or Abrams Chronicle over in the UK. Um, it's on Or literally any bookshop. Any bookshop. Like if you know how to buy a book, you can get this one. I, I promise. Go to bookshop.org. Like I promise. Amazon, your local bookstore. Target, I think even. <laughs> You cannot get it in Tesco. You can't get it in big Tesco. Okay. I checked. Okay. Not in Tesco. Don't don't go there for it. Um, (laughs) We also have um, something a little special up right now. For Virtual Jane Con, we did a pub quiz, and that is available on our YouTube page. 
And there are links to that on our Twitter and our Facebook and Instagram. And Hannah, can you tell the people where they can find us on the internet? How do they how do they get to these places? What is the internet? What's happening? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. Sounds good. Sounds like a good plan. Also, we sell merch online. You can Google that. Bye. That's true. Teespring. <laughs> Bye. Teespring. <laughs>